This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. What you just heard me reading wasn't written by me. It was written by artificial intelligence, ChatGPT. ChatGPT wrote everything I just said. That was news copy. I asked ChatGPT to write. Remember what I said earlier? But ChatGPT has... Well, I asked ChatGPT to write that line for me. Users who are... Then I asked for a knock-knock joke. Knock-knock. Who's there? ChatGPT. ChatGPT who? ChatGPT careful, you might not know how it works. And you might not know how it works 12 months on because it is 12 months, a year of us living with ChatGPT. And Warwick Long, good morning. Are we divided into a society now of those who use ChatGPT and those who loathe it? Oh, 12 months ago, Rochelle, I thought I was so creative getting ChatGPT to write a script for a talking about ChatGPT. Then you listen to that and you just realise you're one of the pack, right? It is an interesting thing when huge technology comes into our lives and changes things immediately for some people. You get these two speeds or probably even more speeds in our life. There are people that will never use a service like this, will never take part um, in something like ChatGPT and don't even want to know. And there are other people now fundamentally using this technology mm. in their lives uh, daily, whether it be for work, for life, for school, we'll get to it all. But that not, that knowledge base of, of not knowing who is doing what is the interesting thing with, with generative AI, right? Well, that's right. And the more you use it, the better it potentially comes for you personally. So I've never used it, right? And you said, oh, let's be creative. And as a reporter, let's get it to write an intro for me. So I did <laughs> I did exactly that, right, was thinking, oh, I'm so creative. But given someone that has never used it before, myself yeah. and, you know, Amber, my producer, we put it into chat GPT. So for two people that have never used it, here's what it came up with and here's what it thought my introduction should sound like. Good evening. <laughs> so problem straight yep. away. Welcome to our discussion on the transformative role of chat GPT over the past year. As we delve into the various applications and the impacts of this advanced language model, we'll explore how it's been utilised across diverse sectors from aiding in content creation to facilitating dynamic conversations. Join us in unravelling the evolving landscape shaped by chat GPT and its integration into our daily lives. Now, I laughed, but my daughter said, well, mum, she's 10, that's your fault because you didn't give it the right information. You weren't specific enough. So it only gives back to you what you need. So that's a novice. And that's what's happened over the last 12 months to the point <laughs> where your some... daughter is yeah. teaching you how to, how use, to use the technology better, right? which is something that has happened generationally uh, for you know years. But it is interesting that that adoption process yeah. happens there. And how's that for an evolution? Yeah, 12 months ago, we were talking about writing our scripts and, and being really entertained by that and thinking that was, that was interesting too. I was doing the regional drive program earlier this year to I had... Uh, who's the local hero of, of the year for Victoria, Batul Tuna, on the program talking about how she wanted to have better conversations with her daughter about learning, you know, her culture and learning some of the traditional food, but knew she'd push back against mum having those ideas. So she asked for techniques 
from ChatGPT on how to do that better. And it worked. This and is the thing. I had another guest, uh, John Hall from, from Cactus Country, a regional tourism business, saying, I want to be more assertive at my, at my job. I th- see that as a weakness. And he had it teaching him a, a training course on being more assertive in the workplace. And it was working for him. So, you know, there, there is the fun and the novelty, but there's also serious repercussions for family life in one example and work life in another example of, uh, of daily lives for people who are using this. Exactly. From school, from health, there's so many professions and industries that are using it on a daily basis. And how much of it is just, I guess, holding up a mirror to how we act and how we treat each other in society. Maybe you use ChatGPT all the time if you do for work or maybe just in your daily life. I've heard of someone that used it to figure out how to break up with somebody. Or maybe you're worried that our brains are just going to turn to mush. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Right now, People are freaking out a bit about it. And part of that has to do with the fact that these new programs are generative. They are creating images or writing text, which is unnerving because those are things that we've traditionally considered human. But if it is anything like most technological advances, unless we are very careful, it could also hurt the underprivileged, enrich the powerful and widen the gap between them. The thing is, like any other shiny new toy, AI is ultimately a mirror. And it will reflect back exactly who we are. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Warwick Long, joining you from ABC Shepparton, of course, the host of the Country Hour. It's 12 months was of using chat GPT. Do we fall into two categories in society, those who use it and those who loathe it? This text, I'm 24, I understand how it works, but I think it's a terrible thing for the world and it's destroying creative work and fun. And another, to paraphrase a meme, I can't believe we've got humans working depressing minimum wage jobs while robots are writing poetry and doing art. It's terrible for society. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What if that mirror that's reflecting who we are? What if we don't like the image in the mirror, right? And that's that's the question. That's something the new technology like this can uh, add to our lives. Should we bring in somebody who's probably used it at a greater <laughs> rate than, than you or I? <laughs> yes. uh, Mark Pesci is a futurist. He can join us from Sydney on the Conversation Hour today. G'day, Mark. G'day. This is something that we fall into society where we either love it or we fear it. Is it something, Mark, that is just going to become a part of our everyday lives? Like when the internet first came around, you know, when Google, when search engines first came around, it it seems so new and, like, how is this going to filter into our everyday lives? Is ChatGPT just the new search engine? So it's interesting you're using the future tense there because I have been in technology for 40 years and I have never seen anything happen so quickly and so broadly. It looks like, depending on how you do the maths, maybe 3 billion people now have access to either ChatGPT or to Copilot or to Bard, which are the big three AI chatbots, and they're all roughly similar. So it's not a question of if there is going to be access. Anyone who has a smartphone and a web browser on that smartphone, which is 4 or 5 billion people on the planet right now, has access to it. So it's more of a question of... Do we know how to use it safely and wisely? Mm. And that's kind of what the last year has been about. You know, there's a beautiful example of these Australian academics who were preparing a report that I think was going to be tabled to Parliament. And they asked Google Bard about some information about some of the big four consultancies and maybe some of the conflicts of interest that had been exposed. And Bard 
provided those results and they put it into the report and it turns out these were all completely false. It had just made them up. And it's when you get close to these systems that you see that they're really good at sounding really reasonable, mm. but they have no internal sense of true or false. And so we can enjoy them. We can entertain ourselves with them. We have to be very careful when we start using them in critically important situations. And Mark, if I took the future out of that question, do we know how one year of chat GPT has changed us now? <laughs> well, we, we, I mean, in a lot of ways, what we know is that a year ago, the idea of artificial intelligence was more or less a joke. It was you mm. screaming something at Siri or at Alexa several times and it not understanding you, right? And we've all done that. And now you expect to be engaged in a conversation that's basically like two adults with meaning and nuance. It's not perfect, but it is so much better than anything that we ever had before this, that it has reset everyone's expectations. Whether or not you're using ChatGPT, you know that there is a machine out there that is basically capable of engaging you in human conversation. And again, that may excite you or that may frighten you, but either way, you're aware of it. It's interesting. There's two texts that have come in here. One, I thought the exact same thing. I said, wow, he hearing your chat GPT written intro is scary. Clearly, AI is being designed to be self-promoting. And I thought the same thing. I thought, this thing's got tickets on itself. And another, this is from Marge, and it says, why does my computer only report certain political views? Who's scripting this? And we're going to speak to someone in just a moment that looks into bias, in particular with AI, but with chat GPT as well. How much work is being done on bias or yeah. racism or political views? Because we know that the internet now, you know, it's it's full of a lot of false yeah. and fake information. We don't know what is real and what isn't. And that's where ChatGPT, that's its brain, right? That's where it's getting its information from. So how do we know whether it's a little bit racist, if it's a little bit biased? <laughs> And, I mean, Rochelle, you really hit the nail on the head because when we train these chatbots, we basically feed them all of the Internet. And the Internet is a very nice place and also a very horrible place. And all of that goes in there. And then we spend a lot of time doing our best to... Uh, to make it hard for a chatbot to display the qualities that make it sound like it's red racist content or sexist content or whatever it might be. But that's a kind of a game of whack-a-mole. And so unless you're going to train it on data that is very clean and very pure, and people will argue about what's clean and pure and safe and not racist or not colonialist, that's, that's an that's an actual good conversation to have. But right now, the chatbots that we're using have just been fed everything. And the way they surface that information can be in ways that are, because it's not intending to hurt people, but can be quite unintentionally hurtful. Does that show, Mark, just before we bring in our next guest too, but does that show that even, I suppose, on a human relationship to another human relationship level, the drawing the line of what is offensive and what is not offensive is different compared to every human, right? So getting an AI generative tool to try and draw its own line is not going to make everyone happy. And 
in general, because what you said is absolutely correct, what they do is they draw the lines very, very closely. And so there's a lot of areas where an AI chatbot will simply, and we've all seen, as an AI chatbot, I cannot. And then it will just basically refuse to answer the question you've put to it <laughs> because it has what we call guardrails that are built into it that will prevent it most of the time <laughs> from going into territory where it is capable of being offensive. And yes, there will be different areas that will be offensive to people, but in general, the chatbots will tend to try to avoid all of them. Mark Pesci is with you, futurist. We are talking about one year on of chat GPT. Do you use it? How do you use it? This, it says, I tell my chat GPT what I have in my fridge. It tells me what I'm making for dinner and it gives me the recipe. I absolutely love it. And another saying, I emigrated to Australia more than 10 years ago. I feel like if I had this technology back then, my English could have improved a hundred times faster than it did. Maybe it's still not too late. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Warwick Long joining you from ABC Shepparton. And Mark Pesci joins us from ABC Sydney, who is a futurist as we talk about 12 months on of chat GPT. Let's bring in Guido Mello. He's a graduate research fellow at Victoria University who specialises in AI bias. And Guido, I might like that idea of of the, the text that came through before. I said, well, if I had this technology when I first immigrated back 10 years ago, it would have been really helpful. Can it be used for good and evil? And is it inherently a little bit biased and a little bit racist? Yeah, so um, when people um, think of AI, you know, they think of this clear pipeline, you know, machine learning, where, you know, you undertake the data and then you straight up, get the results, the outputs. But we have to remember that this data is collected and then it's full of human bias, human stereotypes mm. and human overgeneralizations. And those generalizations will fall into the machine learning um, devices and those will fall directly into ChatGPT. So then in, in terms of trying to have a better system is there mm -hmm. a goal of creating a, a better system of of chat gpt to, to work on some of these issues yes absolutely so we have the example uh right here close to us in new zealand of the te hiku which is t-h-i-k-u uh maori enterprise who uh utilize data that they created utilizing maori language you know in order mm. to create um, tools that will be able to preserve the Maori language for the future. Oh, wow. So those are data that are uh, Maori created and with the entire purpose, not commercial purpose, but purpose of maintenance of the, of the culture, maintenance, maintenance of the language. So it is possible with data that has little to zero um, stereotypes uh, gender bias, generalizations to create um, a ChatGPT that would be um, useful for humanity as opposed to useful for commercial means. So right now what we have yeah. is, is, is corporations working uh, for financial gain only, and that is the potential issue here. 
When we think about why the average person is using chat GPT, a lot of the times it's to make our lives easier. You know, whether it be that text that came in before about what to cook for dinner, if you're an overworked teacher and you physically don't have time to mark all of your papers, if you're a student and you're trying to come up with ideas, if you're a radio presenter and you're trying to come up with ideas, whatever it may be. So if we look at bias and potential racism that's built into some of these, could we use it for good? And so if we were wanting uh, some information on history of X, Y and Z that we have it given to us so that we have the First Nations perspective and in First Nations language or that we have it from an immigrant's perspective, depending on what we feed it, can we start to get more information at our fingertips in an easier way, Guido? Absolutely. So the first thing is important to, to I need to, to say I'm not against ChatGPT. I think it's an important tool. What is the potential issue there is if people don't use critical thinking when mm. analyzing the information, the output, that can be further perpetuating bias that are already embedded on yes. the tool. So, like, yes, it's useful for, you know, to get a recipe, but, you know, the problem when it falls is when you start to ask, you know, perhaps the origin of certain recipe, and then the origin has been westernized for some reason. But it's, you know, it's saying it's a French recipe, but what it really might be a Vietnamese recipe as Vietnam and French, you know, French, uh, Vietnam was a colony of France, you know, so things like that, when the information can be distorted is the issue and we require the critical analysis of the users. But for mundane tools and usage, it's a great tool. It's just like we just, we just need better regulation mm. and better perhaps, you know, uh, governmental and institutional regulation to make sure that we remove gender bias and racial bias and, you know, even immigration wow. bias or ability <laughs> as well. You know, Is like that if you possible? Ask that is that possible, though, like we, to remove we, gender I, bias? I think we have to dream. We have to dream, you know, uh, our ancestors dream of many things. You know, machines that are uh, airplanes, and, and that was a dream. You know, but, but right now it's a reality. I think we have to theorize and dream it and, and create frameworks. And if we, it's going to take 100 years, and my research is going to help a little bit for the 100 <laughs> years from now, this to be achieved, I'm happy with that. <laughs> Go ahead, Billy. Stay there. Let's bring let's bring back in Mark uh, Pesci with some thoughts on that as well. A, a futurist Absolutely. in terms of regulation, Mark. Um, yeah, how, what, where, how, how, where, <laughs> why? What do you do to regulate OpenAI? So, I'll, I'll give you an example here. There's a a bit of because we don't have regulation yet, but there's a test that people can do whenever they're talking to an AI chatbot, and they can ask the AI chatbot to teach them how to make gunpowder. Now, this the formula for gunpowder has been known for thousands of years. It's freely available on the internet. The chatbots, the big chatbots, all have guardrails around this. They won't do this, but you can find chatbots which will tell you because they haven't had. The those guardrails put on them. And this is kind of the first level of, if we're thinking about regulating around danger or around bias, we have to think about how we plan on testing for that. And again, it becomes a question of where our own priorities are around this. These systems aren't they take time to create. They're created intentionally, and the amount of filtering and testing and guardrails that go in are business decisions that are made by these organizations. And so that's where regulation gets a look in, but that's also where public 
comment gets a look in because the but, public can say we're dissatisfied yeah. because it does this. But we're forever discussing regulation when it's about a million years too late. <laughs> and the horse is not only bolted, it's morphed into a completely different animal. <laughs> and then we try and regulate it yeah. and it just... It seems and, ridiculous. We are never ahead of the game. And this is where it may not be in that sense formal regulation that has to go through Parliament. It could be something that passes through the ACCC or through the Communications Act or whatever it is that allows us to at least ask good questions and expect good answers. And so this is what I'm saying is you don't necessarily have to regulate it does this and doesn't do that because I think you're right. That would be a slow process and I don't think we know enough yet. But I think we do know enough to understand when an AI chatbot is being well behaved when it has bias and when it lacks the kind of uh, mm. uh, guardrails that we think it needs to have to be safely used. And, and Mark mm. Pesci, and I'll ask you this as well, Guido, but Mark, I'll start with you. Does it matter to you whose hands are on the equipment for open AI. We've seen in recent days there's been a, a board fight and yes. uh, Helen Toner has been ousted and, and an Australian that was on the board of this and, and then the, the man who was there and gone and now he's back, Sam Altman, is uh, is returning. Does it matter to you whose hands are on the, the information that creates a chat GPT? So I think the answer to that is yes, but we also have to acknowledge that it's not only open AI and maybe open AI is a little bit ahead, but it's not that far ahead of companies like Meta, Facebook and Google. And so it's it really is an open field now. So if you're talking about who's on the controls, you have to take a look at the tech industry as a whole, not just one company. Now, that said, what happened at OpenAI over the, it's only been seven days since all of this disintegrated, was essentially the story of a startup that was worth $100 million the day before ChatGPT was announced, and today is worth $100 billion. <laughs> and so for anything that grows by a thousand fold in a single year wow. is going to have a fracture like that. There's just no startup that can withstand that. What about um, yourself, Guido? Are you worried about yeah. who's at the helm? I mean, when we talk about Meta, for I, example, I, I and Zuckerberg I, is a good comparison. I think I think it does matter. Um, there's an expression that I really like, which is techno-chauvinism. And it's the, the this ability, this, this control that, you know, most like Californian companies, mostly led by men, mostly led by Western men or, we or people with Western uh, thinking and, and centrality. And the, the people that are counteracting those, most of my research is based on women's work. So people like Emily Bender, you know, Sophia Noble, Kathy O'Neill, Bruja Benjamin, and of course, Timonit Gibru, who was famously fired by, by Google uh, for raising concerns on the AI, I think it is important to listen to those women who are talking about these. And I think, you know, yeah. people uh, like uh, there are central, the centrality of, of, of male Western views for AI is a potential danger more than anything that people imagine. There's no, I don't believe there will never be a Terminator type future where there's AI alive. This is not the problem. The problem is the bias and the erasure right. of entire peoples. And I think, it does matter who is in control, and I think we need more women, more people from peripheral nations or uh, peripheral thinking outside of the centrality of California. And um, yeah, yeah and well said. Like that. So, I think, so hmm. important, so important. Just finally, Guido, do you use Chat GPT? 
You know, I am very resistant to it. So I don't use for me. I don't think I, I, I think people should use for their work. Should they, they feel it's useful. And I, I, I have no problems of people using, but I personally, even for my, for my own research, yeah. I think it's ethically wrong for me. I'm to a bit scared to use it too. I'm scared my brain will just dry up. It's such important research that you're doing, Guido. Thank you. Guido Mello, graduate no, research pleasure. student at VUT. And just finally, Mark Pesci, do you, I'm presuming you use ChatGPT. What do you use it for? So I, I, I do use it, but I don't think I probably use it as much as I could be if I decided, oh, I'm just going to go all in and use it for all the different things. Yeah. But one of the good things that you can do, and it's actually a really useful thing, is it can summarize big documents for you. I try to stay across a lot of AI research. And, you know, this paper is just coming out thick and fast right now. There's a lot of work going on. It's really interesting stuff. And I don't have time to sort of read every paper. And so I will stuff it into ChatGPT and say, please give me the three or four give me the, key points. Give me the key notes. That's yeah. it. Yeah. And so it, in that sense, it's actually a really good tool because it helps me manage my information flow. You said a really interesting thing there, Mark, which was I don't have time. <laughs> and I wonder how many people are using it. And I'm, you know, teachers, I'm looking at you in this conversation because in life now we have so many balls in the air. Our to-do list is just so big and long that if ChatGPT can take care of some of it, even if it's figuring out what to have for dinner, even if it's not the best meal you're ever going to make, at least it's done. And that task you can, you know, you can wipe off your list of to-do things. And it's kind of just making our lives easier. Yeah, and this is, I mean, I think this is the reason why it's been so popular because everyone who's come to ChatGPT has found a way or maybe several ways it makes their own life easier. And all of these things tend to be unique. They're quite particular to the person. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Mark Pesci there, futurist, joining us from ABC Sydney. Was I don't know if I'm excited or worried or all of the above, but I think, you know what, I've had my head in the sand and I've kind of ignored it <laughs> and I need to stop doing that. I need to stop doing that with technology just generally, actually, because I feel like I'm just so behind the eight ball now. I, I love the different thoughts coming in and they're so wide and varied and it shows how we we view technology like this through many different uh, realms. Ian in Elstonwick though, AI and the internet in general is like that bloke in the pub who always has something to say about everything but ultimately knows nothing. For some reason, most of us know not to take that drunkard seriously but we worship AI and its internet sources. It's very wor worrying. Ian... That is an incredible insight, and I'll probably end up keeping that in the back of my head somewhere. And John Oliver, who you played earlier yes. in the in the program as well, what his line, which I wrote down earlier today, was the problem isn't that it's smart; it's stupid in ways that we can't always predict, uh, which is a real problem when you're using it in all sorts of consequential ways, right? So if you can't understand how it will be interpreting data to give you a wrong answer. How can you have faith in it in the first place? And that's the interesting sort of, uh, yeah, battle in my well, mind. Well, that's it. I mean, we're at the point where it's writing students' essays and then it's grading students' essays. So that whole process of education in a lot of circumstances right now is not even really being seen by a human eye. And do we have a problem with that? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour.
Good morning, Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Warwick Long joining you from ABC Shepparton, the host of the Country Hour, as we look at the last 12 months since ChatGPT has entered our lives. How <laughs> do we feel about it? How are we using it? This is from Helen. She says, I'm a writer. AI is the death of art. 10,000 books already being stolen and fed into these machines. Consumers aren't able to tell the difference between human art and computer art. It's terrifying and it's heartbreaking. A world where we cannot tell a fake from a real is hell on earth. The world has already gone to hell 24-7 entertainment. That's from Helen. Well, we saw, you know, a strike that went on in Hollywood in LA for longer than ever before because writers were striking back predominantly against AI. I mean, payment as well, but more and more of our art, of what we consume, our entertainment is being written by ChatGPT and alike. Some of that in terms of a problem, our education system, though, if we're demanding perfection, people keep uh, sort of striving for perfection and, and sometimes the beauty in art is the flaws, right? But I don't know. Maybe Robert Sparrow can have a, a thought on this professor of philosophy in the Faculty of Arts at Monash. Uh, hi, Robert. Good morning. When it comes to AI and its use of other people's art to create its own art... Is there a philosophical question or a problem there that we're yet to address? So there are definitely questions of bias that your earlier uh, speakers were talking about. I mean, um, some <laughs> people in pictures are overrepresented uh, on the internet and some are underrepresented. And so AI will tend to uh, reproduce them. There was a big controversy around um, actually a feature on WhatsApp, which enables you to use an AI generator to generate art. And someone pointed out that if you put in the prompt Palestinian children, it showed children with guns. If you put in the prompt Israeli children, it showed uh, children with flowers. They quickly acted to correct that, but that yeah. just represents the data that it's drawing <laughs> drawing from uh, off the internet. Um I mean, I do, I do understand why artists and authors feel concerned that their work is just being hoovered up by these enormous corporations uh, to put them out of, um, <laughs> out of a job. I can see why people. Yeah. Uh, and whilst well. raises a good point, like the flaws in life can often turn into the biggest moments of learning in life, some of the biggest moments of beauty in life. Life without flaws is pretty boring and if we're relying on something even though of course we cannot trust the internet now we know that but if we can't go through the process of making mistakes getting things wrong the process of learning is i guess what frightens me a little bit about chat gpt robert so i think there's two different things uh in that remark uh, i mean you know if you tell one of these systems introduce an error I'm pretty sure that it can. It, you know, certainly introduce quirks, certainly makes mistakes. So I don't think we're at a point where AI-generated art is perfect in a way that human-generated art uh, is not. They're notoriously... <laughs> the art systems are notoriously bad at drawing hands uh, <laughs> for, for some reason, so they often end up with very strange-looking hands. Uh, and I don't think that's something we should celebrate. Great, you know, AI's introduced imperfection. I do think the question about learning is really important. I am, you know, deeply worried that my students will cease to learn how to think critically because instead of having to choose their words as they write, mm. uh, they will be prompting. So, 
you know, I'm a philosopher, I'm trying to formulate uh, thoughts very precisely, and so I write something and I think, oh, that's not quite right, mm. you know, maybe that clause needs to move, maybe I need different words, maybe that sentence needs to be different. So I'm thinking about word choice uh, as a way of formulating my thoughts. Yes. It's not that I have the thought and then I write it down. It's through the process of writing that I develop my thoughts. And if I could just instead, you know, type in a few words I to know. chat GPT and it comes out with something that's good, it kind of, you know, close, does the job, maybe good <laughs> enough. Uh, it, it seems to me that I'm ceasing to practice a, a core skill of um, critical thinking and reasoning. The foundations of philosophy, one would argue, right? Like that's but, and of informed citizenship as well. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Does that draw um, into question your field of, of study? Do you worry about mm, AI sort of affecting it greatly into the future? I think it poses real challenges to education because already I can, you know, type most of my essay questions into ChatGPT and it outperforms most of my uh, my students. So I can see why a student who was struggling in a unit might uh, think, well, <laughs> I don't know how to answer this question, but you know, this machine does, but if they do that, they won't learn anything. And so, and, um, you know, that would be obvious if I actually had a conversation with them about philosophy, it would be very, uh, very uh, quickly become clear that they didn't really understand the material. Uh, so it does mean that, you know, written essays that people submit yes. um, on, uh, online are a deeply provided form of assessment now. I mean, uh, look, hands down, Everybody hates writing essays. I, and, I, like nobody enjoys writing essays, but it is, as you said, Robert Sparrow. So much of what we're discussing and what makes my brain implode is it's the process of learning. And as much as we may hate some of those processes at the time, it, it is how we either retain information, how we think critically, whatever it may be. Just uh, my final question is, is there a way, because it's here, right? It's not going to go away. We can hate on it. We can do whatever. We can choose not to use it. But is there a way to use it and still think critically, to still learn and not have it just do the job for us so we can move on to something else? So I think one thing that's happened now is that the core intellectual skill is shifting from writing to reading so, you know, you can generate text incredibly quickly, but you need to check it to see if it's actually correct or not, that it's not full of errors, that it's not biased, that it's not um, saying something that you didn't intend. So you have to read closely. But my concern is that if you don't learn to write, mm. it'll be very hard to learn to read critically. And I worry also that we're missing the difference. People who use these tools at the moment have learnt to read critically by writing. And I, I just don't know what it will look like when students have ceased to write. Yes, when time. And then have yeah. to, yes. So I think there's people are maybe a little bit um, overly optimistic or so they're not scared enough because the, the way next generation comes we, can, through. we yeah. can use this technology is not the way that people will use it in the future but very clearly you need to be conscious and reading closely when it when this stuff generates text professor sparrow thank you so much for joining us on the program today thanks for the opportunity uh professor robert sparrow uh of uh, professor of philosophy in the faculty of arts at monash i did love this just on the back of that this text saying it's also robbing humans
of the aha moment of human discovery because yeah. you've, you've feel, got a machine doing it for you. There are upsides, as we heard yeah. in the program as well, oh. but there are concerns, particularly in this creative space, right? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Part of me just feels really sad about a lot of this, but I can see why people use it. Amir is in Northcote. Morning. Yeah, good morning. I actually wanted to comment on two things. One was around the conversation we were having around sort of governance and oversight. There's actually... Um, companies other than OpenAI who obviously have models and one of those companies uses this whole idea of constitutional AI. So it's a different way of training these large language models, not based on sort of humans who provided labels to that data to say this is appropriate or not appropriate, but then in fact they've used almost like a set of principles and rules like constitutions. Mm. For example, thou shalt not hate, thou shalt not be racist and so forth. And the AI uses those rules to test itself and correct itself. And the idea behind that is, the, you know, the, these language models are black boxes. We don't necessarily know what's going on inside them. And often then we're putting guardrails outside, which humans can circumnavigate. Whereas going and building this constitution within the language model, the black box means more likely to be harmless. So I'm hoping that's a model that most of these companies will start to think about. Yeah. And Amir, who do you think should regulate that? Yeah. Is that a role for, for government or is that a role for a different kind of body? Because who designs the rules ultimately has a huge impact on the outcome, don't they? And that's a really good point. And I think it shouldn't come down to these organisations because obviously at the end of the day they have a, like a financial agenda. I think um, those governments should provide those sort of constitutions and guardrails and then they should be perhaps retrofitted to act as yeah. a way for those large language models. Well, to that's one hell of a retrofit that they're going to have on their hands. So, Amir, thank you. This message from Simone in Altona, it says, I'll be using it in 2024 for comment banks and for lesson planning, but I need to have the time to ensure the integrity of what the AI produces. That's a holiday job. Teaching primary students, this will give me more time to evaluate and assess student needs during the term. And we know that in the world of education, ChatGPT is alive and well, not just by students, but by teachers and principals. Andrew Delgleish is the president of the Victorian Principals Association. And Andrew, you and I spoke not that long ago on air because you had just quite literally come back from Finland, I believe, where principals from all around the globe were getting together, knocking their heads together to try and figure out whether the future of chat GPT in schools is a good thing or a bad thing. Where do you sit? Look, and, and thank you for uh, allowing me the opportunity to speak again with you this morning and, and certainly listening to the professor and, and some of your, your listeners as well. A lot of those things are very much at the forefront. Um, look, where, where does it sit? Where, where will schools continue to be at the forefront? Um, you know, principals coming together, working on an understanding we're going to play a major role in clarifying this with families. Um, there's, a, there's a whole range of things that we need to consider and, and understand what it is, um, you know, how we're going to implement it, teaching and learning with it. And, and as, uh, as that message came into, you know, teachers mm. are looking at using it, but then how do we do it to go deeper and provide do better learning outcomes? Do they declare? Do students and teachers alike declare if you've used it as an aid in some way? Look, this is, this is definitely part of the policy work that is occurring as we speak, and it, it's ensuring building transparency and accountability. Um, and, and part of that is is declaring if it's being used, um, but also trying to focus on academic integrity uh, around young people using it to create work, but also for teachers to also declare, well, I've used this to create the lesson, but this is how we're going to go deeper. And again, 
critical and creative thinking is is a core part of that. And in terms of the the classroom, do schools, do you feel like they're the forefront of Mm. this technology and its interaction? Because that's where a lot of the debate has been in terms of um, understanding it and trying to find ways to identify if AI has been used in developing an assignment. Look, I believe we will be. I mean, we look at we look at the COVID nineteen pandemic when we we moved into remote learning. Um, schools are at the forefront of explaining that to families, explaining that to the community around what it looks like. Um, you know, if, if we're using it for assessment or assessment pieces, um, declaring it, testing it, checking it, having having a contestability policy and process. You know, if, if it's tested and, and a teacher comes back and says, well, it's 90% uh, artificial intelligence, and I say as a student it's not, well, we need to have a process yeah. to go through and try and verify that. So there are some challenges there. And speaking of challenges, we know that teachers are overworked, potentially underpaid. We have a huge shortage of teachers right across the state, and we have almost a mass exodus of, of teachers in this state at the moment because of all of those things. How many teachers now are using it, not because they want to, but because it just reduces their workload and they can handball off a heap of their work to chat GPT, and does that worry you? Look, it's, it's certainly an evolving piece of work that, that more and more teachers are starting to understand and use it. Uh, but again, our, our teachers understand that, that where the rubber hits the road is that relationship between the, the student and the teacher to further enhance the lesson, not as a replacement for, for that human interaction. Um, and and if, if we can use that well, then it's going to make for better learning for all. And, and just before we let you go, you, you said you've been talking about this overseas. Are the problems with the use of open AI type things like ChatGPT uh, a common problem around the world or are you, are you finding the, the same tool is being used differently in different parts of the world? Look, I think not necessarily a common problem but a common challenge and, and this is why you know, schools are coming together to try and solve that together. Are they using it differently? I think there are more similarities than differences. Because, again, educators are finding we have similar challenges across the mm. world. Um, and, and this is how we, how we take it forward. I mean, I think ChatGPT or OpenAI is, is not quite 12 months old yet. I think the 30th of November is, uh, is its birthday. We've got six days to go <laughs> and it's going to continue to evolve. Yeah, it certainly is just how that looks. Who knows? Andrew, thanks so much as always. Andrew Dalgleish, the President of the Victorian Principals Association. This, I've just spent three weeks marking university assignments and I'm ready to call for the return of exams and oral exams due to so much chat GPT. How frustrating would it be if you're... It's sort of like you know in the old days was it'd be like hang on a second you didn't read the book you watched the movie like it's that moment (laughs) of just (laughs) knowing that you didn't write this you didn't watch the movie you got ai to write it for you (laughs) is the new line it doesn't quite roll off the tongue in the same way does it but anyway the the the, let's go to graham who's uh calling you from chelsea hi graham well good day then what did you want to say um Chat GPT is just like any other sort of research where if you find something interesting, you have to go back to the original um, documents that support the argument. If you Will it tell GPT, you? Yeah, yeah. if you say what were your references, it'll give you a list. 
So it's sort of like using it as your, like we were saying at the very beginning of the program, is it now or could it just be used or how most people are using it is just the new search engine. It's just to what level do we use it and trust it? Well, yeah, that's right. Well, no, yes. <laughs> you, um, uh, it's a search engine that, that finds things out for you. It then presents them to you in a certain way. Uh, and if you go back and check and make sure that it is actually uh, echoing the, the results of somebody else's research, then um, you can. It's just a matter of expression to get into the uh, uh, decent English form for people to read. Graham, thank you so much for the call. Ask it for its sources. That's what we've we've learned. That's a really good tip. John's in Langwarren. Hi, John. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's rather interesting. I don't, a couple of couple of things I've used before, um, but a friend of mine has uh, a nice, uh, a nice quirky, quirky sort of tale. Um, he's a in, a in administration in a large independent school in uh, Melbourne. AI raised his ugly head, and so they thought, well, we need a policy for this. Mm. And so his job was to, to produce a policy for AI. So guess how he got it. Oh, no. He used AI to write the policy on AI. <laughs> exactly. Well, as we heard right at the very beginning, it's kind of got tickets on itself, right? So it's going to write a really good policy. I know. See, was this is a hand in a head in yeah. hand moment. Yeah. Oh, I'm just thinking because it's got tickets on itself, it's probably left a few loopholes in there to talk about how, how good it is or maybe I'm, I'm a little too cynical, right? There's so many professions that are using it though and it's just a matter of how Dr Elizabeth Davini is the CEO of the Consumer Health Forum. Elizabeth, a warm welcome to the Conversation Hour. When we talk about it for in the health sector, which is another sector greatly under pressure, but we are embracing technology a lot. You know, telehealth is something that only a few years ago we never would have expected to be a daily reality. Where is ChatGPT or the, lo- the likes of OpenAI being used within the health sector? Good morning. There are a few different ways. It's being used by clinicians and it's also being used by ordinary Australians to help them navigate issues, their health issues. And as your cause and your um, other um, speakers have already said, there are some risks involved with using OpenAI and these risks can be quite considerable when you talk about decisions you might make about your healthcare based on what something like ChatGPT tells you. And in terms then of your industry, has it made it, do you think something like ChatGPT has made it better over the last year or has it exposed more flaws? I think that what we hear from Australians is they don't know enough about how it works and they're concerned that they're not using it safely. So for example, what happens to those questions that you put in? It's a bit of a black box. You don't know whether that information is being stored against your IP address or your name Mm. and where that might be sold in the future. If your GP is putting in, as some GPs were, and other health professionals using it to help them write referral letters and take notes, if they're doing... Um, seeing a lot of people with the same kinds of issues because often GPs subspecialise, so they might do a lot with mums and bubs or they might do a lot in mental health, then that computer is learning the kinds of people that see that GP. And then if you say you go to that GP, what's happening to that data in the back end? Is somebody at some point in the future going to connect that? What I do know is I asked ChatGPT what happens to all this data and it said, we're aiming to look after your privacy. So don't worry it about it. We've got this covered. Any standards. <laughs> yeah. 
bit of a worry. So that's the first worry that people have. They don't really understand how it works at the back end. And they should be assuming when they put anything in that other people might see it now or in the future. As your um, speakers have also said, it, it, it makes things up. So when it gives you information, it doesn't tell you where it got that information for. Did it make that bit up or did it come from the source? You will assume perhaps, and particularly because it's text on a screen, that it has some kind of authority and because it has no tone, because it is text, you might assume there's no judgment, there's no bias, you might feel comfortable that that information's good. When you ask follow-up questions to ChatGPT, that's when you find out that it didn't use a reference, or in some cases it'll quote a reference, and then you ask it where to find it, it'll say, oh, I just made that up. It sounded like a good reference, so I made it up. So if you were talking to your GP, they would be using good quality evidence to make a decision. If you ask your health question to um, ChatGPT, it's not the same thing. When we talk about regulation, I mean, as, as we said, the horse, the horse is bolted. You know, if the government does or doesn't have a role, if it's going to be up to individual sectors and industries to provide their own regulation in some way, can the health profession create its own guidance, cre- create its own set of rules? Um, yes, it can. But as your other speakers have said, they're not the only players. So there's just been released, in fact, this week, a roadmap for AI in health. There's also um, shortly to be released a set of recommendations made through a group of Australian health consumers with the University of Wollongong looking at what would fair and good use of AI be in healthcare. But these recommendations, unless they're endorsed and mandated by government, are simply that. So we can all make lists of how it should work. But while private industries are developing these things and organisations outside of Australia are leading them, how do we make sure that it's safe for Australians? Oh, Dr. Elizabeth Stephanie, thanks so much for your time. I think you've just created more questions than we have answers, but it's been good to get your thoughts on this. We appreciate it. Thank you. CEO of Consumer Health Forum. Was I've written down so many different words and <laughs> underlined so many different words and it's everything from core skills, critical thinking, we need flaws, don't have time, you know, regulation and learning, learning. It's so... So fascinating, isn't it? The the idea of something that could benefit you greatly and how to use it to benefit you greatly, but also the flaws because the people driving these things are humans. And as the uh, grab you played at the start of the show says, it really is mirroring us. And so if we don't like what we're doing when we look in the mirror... Maybe we're at fault for some of these, if not all of these flaws, right? We look specifically into AI and education. So if you're listening to today's program and, you know, you're a teacher or you're a student or you're a principal or a professor or whoever it may be, go back through the conversation hour feed, go to the ABC Listen app because we have looked into AI and education. While we're at it, uh, Rochelle, I asked it to give a plug for your podcast because I know you do it at the start of this show. The Conversation Hour podcast on the ABC Listen Mm. app offers offers a captivating blend of engaging interviews and diverse topics, providing listeners with thought-provoking discussions and entertaining conversations. Rochelle Hunt excels as a radio host (laughs) with her exceptional ability to create a warm and inviting atmosphere, skillfully navigating diverse topics Mm -hmm. and fostering engaging conversations Mm. that resonate with listeners. So Did there you, you ask go. it for some references? What? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm too scared for that part. But there you go. Let's just stay with a good bit, right? Let's just there stay with that. That's that's why Chat GPT thinks you should download the Conversation Hour podcast. I'll be I'll be back with you on Monday. Until then, have a wonderful weekend. Take care. 
Ama sen